Okay, welcome to Medhead Help, everyone. I'm Dr. Anthony Llewellyn, and here with me today is my colleague and co-host, Dr. Andrew Van Lint. Today, we're going to delve into the new two-year framework for pre-vocational training in Australia. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you, Anthony, and welcome to you, and welcome to the listeners who are at home or work or in the car who want to learn a bit more about medical education. Yeah, we're excited to be here. Now, before we get started on our topic, given this is a new podcast we've just started, we should probably say a little bit about ourselves. Tell them yep. about you, Andrew. Absolutely. I'm a medical education consultant in the Northern Adelaide Local Health Network here in South Australia. And you might say, what's a medical education consultant? I definitely do teaching and education and supervision and some assessment stuff. That kind of goes without saying, but I do a lot of project work, both on creating new resources, video-based things, podcast-based things. And I also like kind of fixing or trying to streamline things within the hospital using systems and technological solutions for those problems. That's me in a nutshell. Brilliant. And I'm a psychiatrist by background, but I've worked in a lot of medical executive and education roles. I was in a past uh, job, the executive medical director at Hedy in New South Wales, if our audience knows what that is. And I'm now currently the chair of accreditation for the South Australian Medical Education Training Unit at um, SA Health. So I'm involved in the accreditation of the pre-vocational space. So the interns and PTY2 or resident doctors in South Australia. And there's a lot happening in that area at the moment. And we're actually going to talk about that. So Andrew, should we get started? Definitely. There's quite a few key things to cover with these significant changes in medical education. And I've heard it quoted by my boss that this is probably the biggest change or shake up of educational standards for this space for the last two decades, which I think Absolutely. is a fair comment. Maybe even further than that, I think, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So as mentioned, we are talking today about the new framework for prevocational training that is coming in place in Australia in January next year, 2024. We're recording this podcast in at the end of November in 2023. So in this podcast, we are going to discuss the main elements of the framework, both from a clinical or medical educator perspective, and then at the end, we're going to chat about some of the key concerns that JMOs may have about the framework and how you as an educator can talk to them about these concerns. So to kick off, Andrew, could you just give us a brief overview of what this new framework is all about? Yeah, love to. So the new framework, which is starting next year, 2024, is a comprehensive revamp of the pre-vocational training for PGY1 and 2, that's postgraduate year after medical school completion. And what's pre-vocational? Pre-vocational means you're not in a college accredited training program towards becoming a specialist of some kind. So these changes are designed to better align with the healthcare needs of the Australian population, including an increased focus on Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health, which is welcome, improving trainee wellbeing, also welcome, and enhancing supervision quality, another welcome change. I'll also tell you what the new framework is not. It's not a two-year internship. Literally had someone bump into me yesterday and say, oh, my child's starting internship and they're a bit interested, a little bit anxious about this two-year internship thing. And I was quite happy to tell them it's not a two-year internship, but it is many other things. So doctors are still eligible for general registration after successful completion of the internship requirements in their first postgraduate year. And they can enter vocational training in postgraduate year two but many people will still be in the pre-vocational space and PGY2 will have more structure around that thanks to these changes. So, Anthony, we've kind of heard some of those 
elements in summary, but why are these changes important and why do we need to change them now? Yeah, thanks, Andrew. Well, as you said, this is probably the biggest change to happen in a couple of decades, and I would argue even more than that. You know, the, the last kind of innovation in the prevocational training space really was the advent of the prevocational training councils or medical councils to look after accreditation, and that happened almost 40 years ago. I think Queensland was the first jurisdiction that did that. So the existing framework, if we can really call it a framework, it's it's really more of it's not a design framework. Let's let's be honest about it. It was it's just something that's mm. evolved over time and maybe consolidated back in 2014 when the medical board developed guidelines for the internship, which were largely based around certain experiences happening during the internship, and pretty much that was it. So back then the focus was solely on the intern year, and it's been in need of an update for a while. So there was a national report into internship. And it concluded that the previous framework doesn't really address the healthcare needs of the Australian population. It had a limited focus on clinical work. There was a lack of consistency in supervision quality and assessment. And uh, we couldn't really say whether the interns and then the PGY2 doctors were improving as part of the framework and meeting any sort of quality criteria. So the new framework is a response to all those sort of perceived gaps. And it's about to happen, as you said, Andrew. So what is tell us the listeners, when exactly is this new framework going to be implemented? Well, it's starting implementation uh, next year. So if you're an intern or a PGY1 doctor next year in Australia, you'll be subject to most of, not necessarily all the changes, but many of the changes that are coming in as part of the new framework. There's a bit of flexibility for postgraduate year two. So some health services are choosing to adopt it next year. I think most are choosing to adopt it the following year. And that makes sense because it means that you're starting next year, your internship in the new framework and then continuing in the new framework the following year. Mm. So for example, here in South Australia, where I'm based, we're going to roll out the framework next year for our interns and the following year for our residents for that flow and effect as discussed. So my question to you, Anthony, how does this framework change the term requirements for first-year doctors if internship is remaining the same as a one-year thing? That's a great question, Andrew. And as you highlighted to our listeners, you're busy already getting things set up for the new interns and looking at things like revisiting all the term descriptions to align with the new framework. And I've similarly been busy doing that with the accreditation team in South Australia. It's one of the things that we've done with all the health networks is get them to review all their term descriptions for PGY1s so that they align with the new terminology and the new requirements. So there is going to be significant changes in the intern terms, maybe not so much around the length of time you're in a term. That's still going to stick to being either usually interns, depending on where you are in Australia, will either do five terms of about 10 or 11 weeks a year or four terms of about 13 weeks a year and you'll still rotate through parts of the hospital and hopefully more often now outside of the hospital so there'll be a minimum of four terms but they'll focus not so much on what the setup of that term is you know that the, the neurosurgical unit or the cardiology ward or what have you but what you get to experience in that term so the hospitals will need to kind of apply a bit of a matrix approach to make sure that the experiences you get across your four or five terms make sure that you both see undifferentiated, unworked up patients as well as more chronic comorbid patients as well as acute patients and get a variety of experience, including things like procedural experience as well. So that's 
I think that's going to take a while for people to get their heads around because I'm pretty sure everyone's still going to talk about how I did an ED term and a medicine term and a psychiatry mm. term, but those terms are going to be labeled something else. And, and the idea is there, there is particularly for your internship, hopefully that broadens your experience. And hopefully you also get to experience more terms over the time outside of the acute hospitals, maybe in other sort of facilities and in the community as well. So that's, that's the, he changed the terms for interns. Andrew, PGY2 changes in South Australia, at least, and most other places are going to come in place in 2025. What are those changes going to look like for the PGY2s or the resident doctors? Mm. I, I mean, it's going to look a bit more like the continuation of internship with a slight step up in responsibility. And naturally, there'll be some rotations that are specific for residents as opposed to interns because of that increased clinical experience and responsibility. But I think ultimately the emphasis is going to continue be to be on broad generalist experience, but with opportunity for a bit more specialisation compared to being an intern. There's a requirement for at least three terms in various subspecialties, and that should provide exposure to various clinical experiences. And the approach is designed to reflect the diverse health needs of the community. And if you're a junior doctor still working out what training you want to do, and that's a lot of you, you have more structured time with a range of experience to help with that choice and a, and a really healthy dose of supervision. If you already know what you want to be in terms of like being a surgeon or a psychiatrist, a GP, a physician, et cetera, the PGY2 year, if you're not starting vocational training, still allows you to remain somewhat generalist whilst also having the option to pursue experience for your area of interest prior to starting your vocational training. Anthony, would you say that there are changes for assessments under the new framework? Yeah, absolutely, Andrew. I guess the first one, both at a assessment level but also a governance level, is the fact that PGY2s are going to be part of the framework now. So that doesn't actually happen in all states and territories consistently. It does in some and does and hasn't in others. And I think that's probably one of the arguably very good changes coming in place. There's a recognition that interns don't immediately roll into specialty training anymore. They often take a year or more to get into specialty training. So having a, a training framework, a governance structure, and bodies like the postgraduate medical councils to make sure that you're getting exposed to good training, but also that you're looked after in terms of your well-being is going to be good for PGY2s. So, you know, traditionally PGY2s really haven't had to do any assessment. So that's that's going to be different. For the interns, you're still going to have your end-of-term assessments and what's called a mid-term assessment, so what other people might call a supervisor report. I, th I think mid-term assessments are a little bit inconsistent across the country, but they're now going to be mandatory. And again, that's good because it's really no good getting to the end of your term and being given bad feedback. You know, you haven't got the opportunity to change or improve. So no, it's, a, it's a great, great move. Yeah. My, one of my favorite policies is the no surprises policy. You, know, you can't, yeah. can't be surprised when you're like, oh, you're underperforming in an assessment. You should be told that informally and you should have midterm assessments to give you that opportunity for specific feedback and improve with support. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that's, go that's going to be in place. And that'll be for interns and residents. And then the AMC is introducing a range of other assessments, some of which are not going to come in place next year or aren't coming in place next year. They're coming coming in the following year, but a lot of services like Andrews are trialling them, which are the EPAs, which we'll, we'll get to. Also, in terms of who can assess you, I think this is another good move, something I've been arguing for quite a while, is that there's some trust now that the 
interns and residents can be assessed and supervised by people other than some fellow of the college who's got advanced trainees and registrars and all these other people to supervise at the same time. Mm. Um, so your day-to-day supervisor is more likely to be your registrar, you know, and this is going to be formalised. And that's largely probably what's happening in most places anyway. But also nurses, pharmacists, allied health will be able to provide some supervision and definitely be able to provide some assessment and feedback in certain circumstances. So I think the clever services are going to take advantages of this broader pool of supervisors and assessors and help reduce the burden on the existing consultant supervisors and to cope with some of the extra demands of the framework. And as I say, there will be some assessments that are going to be new to the pre-vocational space. Eventually, all interns and residents will need to undertake per annum at least 10 EPA assessments in order to meet the requirements. So, Andrew, you've been exploring EPAs at NARLAN, Northern Adelaide Local Health Health Network. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you explain what an EPA is and, and how it's being implemented in this new framework? Yeah, absolutely. And just before that, I completely agree with your endorsement of the broadening of staff members and seniority that can be involved in assessment and supervision, because I think it makes a more holistic perspective for our doctors in training to get feedback and much more accurate assessment of where they're at. And I also think it protects against the old once a week you see a consultant and put on a good show for them, mm. but the rest of the week you might not be doing your best. And then the consultant just sees your best and a bit of a performance rather than the full range of, of, of your performance across multiple areas. So very welcome. Yeah, uh, e- many a frustrated registrar have mm. had a trainee doctor that they've been worried about and, you know, they've been signed off by the consultant. And Yeah. Yeah, so I think that's, the, that's good. The, yeah. the failure to fail phenomenon yeah. hopefully yeah. will be reduced in this as well. So EPA assessments, very excited about this. So EPAs or entrustable professional activities, these are a core aspect of the framework, particularly in terms of quite a new element within uh, the pre-vocational space. They represent the key clinical tasks of PGY1 and 2 doctors and are assessed to judge the level of supervision needed to perform those tasks. And these include clinical assessment, that's the most common one, recognition and care of the acutely unwell patient, the deteriorating patient, if you will, prescribing and team communication, which is incorporating both verbal and written communication. A really important distinction that I gained from a recent pre-vocational forum that both of us attended in Perth was that EPAs should be considered the everyday clinical work that we're doing. I'm doing EPAs all the time. I'm entrusted quite highly As someone that's recently been a senior registrar and transferring into consultant level, I'm entrusted to supervise others. As a registrar, I was entrusted to perform semi-autonomously in many areas, but with some reactive or remote supervision in other circumstances. Someone that's much more junior is going to be entrusted at a lower level requiring more direct or indirect supervision. And then the EPA assessment, not just the EPAs, the EPA assessment is a way of assessing the degree of entrustability for these different activities for the doctor and training. I think it's a really good thing. Mm, yeah, and we'll probably do another podcast or two on EPAs, but the, the point is it's about trust. So we actually trust that you can do this job. So we're starting from a positive lens. We're not setting you up for failure by giving you a task or capability that we know is going to be on your your realms, but we, we believe that you can prescribe, for example, and here's a way of you demonstrating it for us. So it might be helpful for our listeners if you could elaborate a little bit more, Andrew, and maybe give an example of how one of these 
EPAs might work in practice for, say, an intern? Yeah, I think one of the things I like about all the EPAs is that it says it needs to be at least partially directly observed by the assessor or a member of the team that the assessor has spoken to, whilst I find that a lot of assessments can just be the junior doctor presenting a case, more like a viva and in a discussion. And I think that's still helpful. But here, I think the direct supervision, it recognises you don't know what you don't know. And the supervisor coming to observe is going to make a richer assessment, both from the formative perspective and the summative perspective. So let's take one, for example, prescribing. One of the activities could be on the ward round that someone's determined to be for discharge tomorrow. And so there's some planning for that. And the intern might say, actually, at the end of the ward round, would you be happy to watch me do my discharge prescription in preparation? And the assessor might be a registrar, might be the consultant, say, absolutely, I've got time, let's do that. And they'd literally just sit back and watch the intern go through that prescribing, whether it be a brief discussion with the patient, maybe some collaboration with the pharmacist, looking through their record to see what's prescribed, checking organ function, all those kind of things, and ultimately working out what needs to be on the discharge script, what quantities need to be prescribed, and then reviewing that prescription and then having some feedback around that process. And it could be just part of the process or it could be the whole process from start to finish. I love the flexibility that the EPA assessments allow because we're all busy, so we might not always be able to do the whole uh, the whole process, but it also recognises that some elements of the process might need a bit more focus than others because they have more complexity or risk associated with them. So let's say the assessor, the registrar in this case, has watched that process happen over 10, 15 minutes and then views the discharge prescription. They then might start with some self-assessment by the the intern and say, how do you think that went? And the intern might you know, say, well, these are the things I thought worked well. On reflection, I think maybe this other these other elements might do better. And then the assessor provides the feedback, says these are the things I think worked well. And this is all aligned with the positive critique method or Pendleton's rules. Mm-hmm. And here are my suggestions for how things could be better. And there could be elements where it might be a surgical patient and they're prescribing some opioids and discharge. And they might have prescribed 20 tablets of 10 milligrams of oxycodone. And in this circumstance, the assessor might say, look, I think it's a really good choice of drug. They were on it in hospital. Their organ function is appropriate. They haven't had any side effects from it. They have still got post-operative pain. I think it is appropriate to prescribe some opioid on discharge. However, they haven't needed much and they've been mostly using five milligrams. I'm concerned that maybe 10 milligrams is a slightly higher dose that's required and perhaps allowing the five milligram dose might be more appropriate. And then the trainee might go, okay, that's a really good point. I hadn't thought of checking the rate dosage that they've actually been using. I just noticed that they were getting five to 10 milligrams on the order. And they might say, great, that's a good reflection. Another point was, you know, opioids are associated with constipation. And this person now hasn't had their bowels open for three days. I'm a bit concerned they might have opioid-induced constipation. Had you considered prescribing a laxative for them to use as required? on discharge or maybe even give them something today. And the the intern might say, actually, that's a really good point. I had thought of that earlier, but when I was going through the discharge process that I'd actually forgotten about it, but I would definitely use something. And the you know assessor might say, what what would you use? And I might say, well, I think I'd probably use DocuSatan Senna and and the, with two, two tablets BD as required. And the supervisor goes, great, that's exactly what I'd choose as well. And then they complete the assessment and they choose a level of entrustability it's on a three levels of entrustability, one of the lowest which needs direct supervision and the highest of which allows for more remote supervision or just as required. 
And so in that circumstance, they might pick the, the medium level where it says, look, you know, this was safe prescription, but with some errors for improvement. So I'm going to choose level two. They complete that. And then later the e-portfolio will come along and the trainee will be able to upload that to their e-portfolio. Yep. Does that kind of make sense, Anthony? Yeah, that makes sense to me. So there's going to be an electronic platform eventually to support all this to make it a little bit easier because there's going to be lots of forms and lots of neat services needing to check how many people are needing to do how many more EPAs, et cetera. So, and you'll be able to have, if you're a trainer, you'll be able to look at your record of the EPAs and your supervisor and directors of training will get access, et cetera. So, yeah, I think that's a great example. And that example you just gave or that scenario would also be an EPA that potentially a non-doctor could assess in, say, the pharmacist as well. So, yeah, absolutely. In fact, sometimes I would think for discharging or medication history on admission, a pharmacist would probably be better suited than a registrar and consultant in many, many circumstances. Yep, yep, Might be bold to say that, but there are some things <laughs> that doctors are not the best at doing. Yeah, I've, I've always valued pharmacy input and they can often go through a complex med chart and give you some really good ideas about rationalising things. So, Oh, yeah. absolutely. It still happens today. Now, yeah. What do you think about the support? We've obviously talked about the frameworks and assessment, some changes in the term description. Are we improving support for our junior doctors with this new framework? I hope we are. I, I believe so. And um, I know I've been harping on this a little bit, but I think like a key thing is now all PGY2 doctors are under the framework. They're being supported. They're being, there's an accreditation body. Most, most hospitals you know, do do look after their PGY2s, but we, you know, we've seen some examples of other unaccredited doctors being not well looked after in their roles in in hospitals that have made it into the media and, and that sort of stuff happens. So I think again, expanding it to the second year provides a lot more support and safety, particularly in those early years as you're starting out. And there is an emphasis on supporting doctors. You know, the whole point of this is again you know, I know as having done this work for many years that 99% of the interns by the end of, you know, midway through the second term of the year, you can pretty much say they'll be okay. You know, you can sort of see mm. the feedback and they're so going to make it. Yeah. Yeah. So then we need to sort of, and we, we need to acknowledge those that are doing well and, you know, reward good performance. But we then tend to focus in on who are the one or two or three in our hospital that are just struggling a bit and, identifying them and trying to put some supports in place so they can also make it through. So there's going to be a focus on that sort of thing, early identification, feedback. You know, when I was at Hedy, we would often have issues where often it was left up to one person, usually the director of training, at the end of the year to sign off all the interns. And that mm. often was difficult for one individual. So a number of jurisdictions already have what's called an assessment review committee, but these will be mandatory in place. And so this is part of the kind of the EPA world of things and what's called programmatic assessment. But the idea there is that we take lots of sources of feedback about a trainee and we have a number of people weigh in on that feedback rather than just one individual, which makes it safer for that one individual who was having to make all those sort of high stakes um, decisions at the end of the year. So there'll be committees that'll be tasked with monitoring the progress of the interns and residents those committees will obviously involve the director, have the director of training on it, but there'll be others. And so I think that's going to be another good change coming through. Absolutely. Welcome changes. And so what about the supervisors, Andrew? How does this framework affect supervisors? Uh, we can't forget the good old supervisors. So there's definitely an increased emphasis on training in assessment, feedback and cultural safety. And we know there are some outstanding supervisors already out there who are 
shining beacons of quality assessment, effective feedback, and sensitive cultural safety. But there's also a whole range of other supervisors out there that would really benefit from a bit more training. And this framework will bring some of that. So there's a requirement for them to have supervisor training within three years of the framework's in implementation. And I think they need to do a, re a refresher every three years, which I think is also a great way to keep current of changes and skills. And some supervisors will be glad to have that formal training. Some might feel that it's replicating the training they get from their college for supervising registrars. Uh, I mean, psychiatry does a very good job of that and physicians and others already have programs like that. So the pre-vocational medical councils, the PMCs are gonna work hard to ensure that the training offered is really value adding to the supervisor capacity and is particularly tailored to the needs of interns and residents, which although overlap with the registrar side of things, I think they have a unique set of, of needs and a unique set of skills that supervisors need to best support them. Yeah, great, Andrew, thanks. So listeners, at the beginning of this podcast, we promised we would talk to you about some of the key concerns that have been expressed about the new framework and how you as an educator can respond to these. So let's run through a couple of these, starting with the biggie, Andrew. Isn't this just a two-year internship, Andrew? And will these changes delay entry into specialty training at the end of year one? No. Next question. No, it's not a two-year internship. As I said quite early on the podcast, the majority of interns will still receive their general registration at the end of the year, just as interns have for many years. So the, the main reason someone might not get their general registration is because they've had to take time off or they haven't, they need to do an extra rotation because they haven't passed one of them. That kind of thing happens to, you know, a, a minority, but a decent number of interns every year in every jurisdiction. That's normal. That will likely continue to be just the same. And the vast majority will continue to have general registration in the second year. So trainees will still be able to enter college training programs in PGY2, where this is allowed by the colleges delivering the training program. I'm aware that there are some colleges, particularly the critical care colleges, who will not accept PGY2 or three applicants. You have to be PGY4 and above. That being said, it needs to be acknowledged that it has been the case for some times, you know, for some time, that the options for entering special training at the PGY2 has been reasonably limited to areas, particularly basic physician training be the classic one. I did that myself straight out of internship and then took a year off after that first year of BPT. Psychiatry can, although they generally take PGY3 and above, and general practice can, although that's still a year that's based in the hospital. So those things are still going to basically be the same. You're still eligible for those things. I've got a, a FAQ for you, Anthony. It sounds like this is going to create a lot more work for supervisors and medical education units in particular. Are the hospitals going to cope? Is it worthwhile? Thanks, Andrew. That is a, a biggie. Look, I think there are a couple of points here. Firstly, if we go back to the original intern re review and the report and what it says, clearly it was a system that evolved and it started to evolve away from the needs of both the trainee doctors, the, the workforce needs and the community needs in terms of what types of doctors we're wanting to produce after medical school in terms of their specialization, mm. whether that be generalist or sub, super subspecialist. So some of the changes make immediate sense, like an emphasis on different experiences and exposing interns and PGY2 doctors to experiences that might encourage them to go into areas of workforce that are needing more doctors, such as general practice and psychiatry, for example. So good. Uh, so good. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, having more robust approach around assessment, I, th I think makes sense. It could certainly suffer 
from an implementation perspective. But definitely having a committee in charge rather than one single person, I think everyone would agree that's a, a much fairer way of judging progress, particularly at the end of internships. So so there are things in there that just I think just make sense immediately and I don't think anyone mm. will argue with and they will add value. But let's let's not sugarcoat it. The AMC, that's the Australian Medical Council, who's been in charge of developing this framework, have acknowledged this themselves that there's going to be a lot of work to do in terms of moving to the new framework. And even once we've embedded it, I think it's reasonable to say that there's going to be more assessments, there's going to be more thinking about the progress of, of the interns and residents. So that's going to require a little bit more effort from the supervisors and the assessors particularly. And things like e-portfolios are generally never easy to implement. So that's going to require a bit of change management as well. So you know, some of this is going to be mitigated by the opportunity for expanding the scope of assessors and supervisors. Let's also be open about that in saying that consultants are busy, but so are registrars, yeah. <laughs> so are pharmacists, so are nursing staff, etc. So, yeah. Well, what know, I'm hearing of- from you is, you know, every time we change a new system, that needs extra effort. Okay, that's does, a given. Any change we do is going to need extra effort. That's tick that box. Yes, it's going to need need that investment. And what I'm also hearing is probably ongoing, we are raising the standard slightly, not in a yeah. huge way, but we are raising the standard and therefore we'll be raising the requirement of time and effort put into, but it's not going to be a drastic change. I don't know. I don't think it's going to be a, a huge quantum leap, but we're going from a system where essentially we've got a supervisor's report form that could take as little as five minutes to complete in some it's, it's been a bit it's been a bit loose i would yeah. say the yeah. current system we have particularly in the pgy2 space you really mm-hmm. don't have to do very much fortunately a lot of hospitals choose to do a lot yeah. more than not much and i think this is a great system to ensure that quality supervision yeah. education and assessment is being performed consistently. Yeah. And when, when we think about what we do with medical students and in the amount of assessment they get and feedback yeah. they get and registrars, especially trainees, the amount of assessment and feedback they get. If you compare what was su- that is being suggested for the interns and residents, it's probably still lighter than those. those it's reasonable. Levels. It's yeah. very reasonable. Yeah. Yeah. So look, I think there will be some change effort, and I think ongoing it'll be embedded, but it will require a bit more sort of work and attention from those involved. So let's wrap it up. Andrew, I think it's been a great discussion. The main goals of this framework are to align pre-vocational training with the community health needs, improve the focus on clinical work, enhance the quality of supervision and pay more attention to training wellbeing. It's a significant, it's probably the biggest step in improving medical education in Australia in this space, but also probably, you know, in the whole medical education space, probably the only other the other one that's at the moment is the CPD home thing. That's kind of a big game changer as well. Oh, yes. It's going to be a big change. We'll put, we'll put that on the list to talk about too. Yeah, okay. Um, but thank you, Andrew, for the insightful discussion. Thank you, Anthony. It's uh, it's great to discuss these important changes with it in education with you, particularly because we're working in different states and so we can share different perspectives, not just the perspective from one hospital, one network, one state. And thank you for our listeners for tuning in, hoping to – Be back soon with more interesting content, insights, and ideas on medical education in our next episode of MedEd Help. You've been listening to MedEd Help. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. We're also available on our MedEd Help website. That's meded.help. 
where if you've got an idea for a particular topic you'd like us to focus on, you can contact us and you can subscribe to our newsletter. We look forward to joining you in another podcast. See you soon. <laughs>